Good morning. Uh, I'm going to be reading from Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail. First, I must confess that over the last few years, I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace which is the de devoted to order than justice. The absence of tension to a, a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly, constantly says, I agree with you and your goals that you seek, but I can't agree to your methods of direct action, who paternalistically feels he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. To me, this piece is really about standing back in the safety of your own whiteness and doing nothing, not taking action because you don't have to, because it doesn't hurt you. As a white person, what happened to George Floyd doesn't hurt me. But it's not, I can't just sit back and do nothing. That's not what. I'm here to do, that's not what God tells us to do, and that's not what Jesus tells us what to do. We need to do something. Compassion, love, we need to take action. And that's what it means to me. An excerpt taken from the, from the book Strength to Love by Martin Luther King Jr. Honesty also impels us to admit that the church has not been true to the social mission on the question of racial justice. In this area, it has failed Christ miserably. This failure is not due to the fact that the only church has been appallingly silent and, and um, disastrously indifferent to the realm of race relations, but even more to the fact that it has been often an active participant in shaping and crystallizing the patterns of the race caste system. This, for me, it really digs deep because I know what it's like, or I have felt what it's like to be segregated in some ways. I have been places where it does hit deep in that area, and I can imagine the, the segregation when you feel when you're at church, when you're at a place where you can be vulnerable with yourself, with God, and with your other peers or community. I cannot understand how must that feel. And there are ways that many churches can change, and there are ways that our churches have improved greatly. This church went from one person of color to many, and I'm very proud to say that this is my church. Um, hi, um, I'll be reading from a section from Paul's letter to American Christians delivered at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, Montgomery, Alabama on November 4th, 1956 by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. May I say just a word to those of you who are struggling against this evil. Always be sure that you struggle with Christian methods and Christian weapons. Never succumb to the temptation of becoming bitter. As you press on for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline, using only the weapon of love. Let no man pull you so low as to hate him. Always avoid violence. If you succumb to the temptation of using violence in your struggle, unborn generations will be the recipients of a long and desolate night of bitterness, and your chief legacy to the future will be an endless reign of meaningless chaos.
Um, to me, I think this quote really gets at the core of Dr. King's nonviolent resistance stance. I think it's really easy to focus on how people have wronged you. And one of the things I admire, admire most about Dr. King was his, his, his ability to see and experience racism in some of its most violent forms and actively choose not to reciprocate said violence. Um, sometimes even I find choosing love particularly difficult because as a black person, it's like hard to go through life and experience racism and remember that like the real villain is racism and not the people who have wronged you. So um, as difficult as it may be, I think that as Christians, as people, we should all strive to lead with love and to leave a legacy of peace to future generations. A section from Paul's letter to American Christians delivered at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, Montgomery, Alabama, on November 4th, 1956, by Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. So Americans, I, much, I must urge you to get rid of every aspect of segregation. The broad universalism standing at the center of the gospel makes both the theory and practice of segregation morally unjustifiable. Segregation is a blatant denial of the unity which we all have in Christ. It substitutes an I-it relationship for the I-thou relationship. The segregator relegates the segregated to the status of a thing rather than elevate him to the status of a person. The underlying philosophy of Christianity is diametrically opposed to the underlying philosophy of segregation, and all the dialects of logicians cannot make them lie down together. The idea of this sermon is to point out the unchristian practice of segregation in the South that had existed throughout the 20th century and st starting directly after the Civil War had ended. The golden rule of the Bible is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, making the I-it relationship blatantly unchristian and immoral. As Christians, if we wish to follow the practice of the Lord, must be actively anti-racist and advocates of love over hate. A section from Paul's letter to American Christians, delivered at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, Montgomery, Alabama, on November 4th, 1956, by MLK. In your struggle for justice, let your oppressor know that you are not attempting to defeat or, hum or humiliate him, or even to pay him back for injustices that he has heaped upon you. Let him know that you are merely, merely seeking justice for him, as well as yourself. Let him know that the festering sore of segregation debilitates the white man as well as the Negro. With this attitude, you will be able to keep your struggle on high Christian standards. Um, so for me, this quote sort of exemplifies how, in all cases, equality is you know, mutually beneficial to like, the minority and the majority because it allows us to exist in a more accepting, a more you know, constructive and productive society because we don't waste time squabbling and mistreating individuals. Instead, we can focus on improving our society as a whole and as a collective. And I think, like, you know, this, this bullshit, like, hatred and, you know, ha having those sorts of beliefs can, can really be, you know, uh, horrible for, you know, to, to hold inside of you for, for so long. And I think that, you know, MLK speaking about this, you know, shows how, you know, that, 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 that kind of hatred leads to nothing. It can, it can, you know, cause you to become trapped and cause you to reject, you know, any kind of change or, you know, different things that might be very beneficial for you to, you know, try, try to accept or let into your life. So I think, you know, this, this quote can really be applied to a lot of different 
uh, things in, in, our, in our society. So it's just very well written. Amen. A section from I Have a Dream, delivered on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., on August 28, 1963, by MLK. Not everyone can be famous, but everyone can be great, because greatness is determined by service. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. Reflecting on this quote, I think of helping the homeless community, as you saw in the slideshow. Good morning. <clears throat> Continuing with the theme of the young folks. Um, Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Amen. Now that he is safely dead, let us praise him. Build monuments to his glory. Sing hosannas to his name. Dead men make such convenient heroes. For they cannot rise to challenge the images that we might fashion from their lives. It is easier to build monuments than to build a better world. So now that he is safely dead, we, with eased consciousness, will teach our children that he was a great man, knowing that the cause for which he lived is still a cause, and the dream for which he died is still a dream, a dead man's dream. Carl Wendell Hines, Jr. The Hines poem speaks of the tendency of culture to kind of water down and sanitize and smooth out and mythologize those aspects of history that prove most challenging, that are inconvenient, and are just downright uncomfortable. The poem is attributed to be a response to how the legacy of MLK has been easier to swallow and made to fit a version of Americana that has forgotten the more radical aspects of MLK, particularly at the time of his death in 1968. It's funny that some scholars attribute the poem to have been written in response to the death of Malcolm X, who was comparatively a much more radical figure than MLK, which just goes to show that even a critique of a critique of a critique <laughs> of a legacy is always subject to mythology. In any event, the poem is thought to be a critique of of a culture that's trying to get the most uh, bang for its historical buck on the cheap. You know, by appropriating and affirming MLK with you know, cosmetic and performative words and gestures, 
Well, not really given much thought about the issues and the concerns that, and the goals that, that animated his work, and more importantly, his faith in Jesus. But, you know, that happens all the time. We always exploit the dead. The dead can't offer rebuttal. Yeah, tomorrow is the federal holiday for MLK. And the entire nation is going to offer praise, and, and rightfully so. Praise will even come from those who are politically, morally, spiritually opposed to every single goal and concern that MLK ever had, literally in every conceivable way, from voting security to poverty to a living wage. And I'm sure that some will quote the classic lines from his speech at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, you know, that famous line that says, I have a dream that for my four children will one day live in a nation where they will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of the character. And that speech will probably be offered as proof that, you know, it's not about race. Look at this race. It's not about race. It was kind of funny that before he was uh, assassinated, he had planned to do a speech called Why America May Go to Hell. And it dealt with the uh, relentless aspects of racism and white supremacy, economically and socially. And, and I can rest assured that tomorrow there won't be any quote from that speech. Honestly, if I was you know, thinking about it, the Heinz poem does describe a kind of tension that I personally personally feel in trying to reconcile my respect for the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. and just being a follower of Jesus as a black man in a church community, you know, who's part of the PA in schools and who goes to, you know, other things and goes to the movies and just, uh, just living. Yeah, I've struggled, and, and I'm being honest here, so yeah, yeah, bear with me here. This is a slash testimony, slash reflection, slash open heart. So when you're going to throw some fruit, you better, better, better aim, aim right here. Um, I've always struggled to, to preach and speak, or whatever you want to call this, on MLK uh, weekend in the past. And I've told this to Brother Tom. We, we've had this discussion many times. And, you know, I've always thought that sometimes it could, be, um, could perpetuate stereotypes, you know. Um, like Carl, the black guy, the, the homeless ministry guy, of course he's going to talk on MLK Day, right? I mean, that's, that's just perfectly natural. He works with the homeless, he's black, you know. And I've always had a sneaking suspicion, a fear, that maybe one day the, the Manhattan church would give in to cultural pressure and Church of Christ pressure and award me the annual MLK Award for service. <laughs> and knowing me, because I'm, you know, I don't want to hurt nobody, and I probably would have been like, okay, me, me? I had no idea, I'm surprised. But obviously, I feel a little different now, a little. I also realized that going a little deeper, that I'm a product of my culture. I'm a living, breathing product of my culture and my social location. And, and the real tension that I had growing up in my faith community, as I perceived what I was taught, was that you know, MLK's legacy, it was nice. But it was secular, you know what I mean? Over here, it was, it was sweet, you know, at, um, powerful, great, but not really 
the soul-saving power of Jesus Christ over here. Secular, sweet, homeless, poor, rights, civil rights, whatever. Jesus Christ, right? And this stuff like helping the poor, homeless, and fighting for living wage, voting rights, equitable living, and uh, rights for all people of sexual orientation. I, I always felt that somehow, though, they were, they were different. You know, it's kind of like going to a restaurant and, and having a low-calorie, low-fat optional dessert that's separate from the robust gospel meal. It's nice, but not really needed. It's really funny. I never thought I felt that way until I actually deconstructed some of my views and actions. And when I say deconstruct, I don't mean, I mean, I don't mean demolition or destroy. I mean deconstruct sort of uh, relying heavily on the, uh, the, the French brother, uh, uh, Jacques Derrida's definition of deconstruction, you know, by just examining text and meaning. And for me, the, the text was how I read Jesus and the meaning was how I lived Jesus. You know what I mean? That's, that's, how, I, that's how I define uh, deconstruction. And, you know, I'm blessed to be a part of many groups uh, outside the church, you know, just uh, groups that deal with social activist thing, advocacy things, uh, the New Sanctuary Coalition with Rob, Robbie Rakebeer, the advocates on behalf of immigrant rights, OHI, the Open Hearts Initiative, and, you know, we do a lot of things, you know, protesting and other things. And, and I recall, uh, uh, you know, last year, uh, some fellow ministers and myself were protesting how people who were homeless were being treated by the city and by the, by the neighbors. And, you know, this is what we're doing. COVID was at its, at its uh, high, and, and people, they were asking, they, people, were, people had tried to sue the city to get people who were homeless out of those hotels. So they asked me to do a press conference, and I did, you know, I'd done some press conferences and whatnot, and some of them made it news, and, you know, I was very, very critically, loudly, very critical of the administration. Loudly. But, you know, after the conference, do you know what popped into my head? The first thing? I hope my church family didn't see this. I hope that nobody from my church where I minister sees this. I actually felt, I felt that. And I asked myself, why did I feel that? What, what? And I had to deconstruct that tension that I the still in me, I mean, I'm, I'm cool, Carl, you know, I can, but I had this thing of still secular gospel. And I, yeah, it was hard to bridge that gap. Then I thought of MLK, Martin Luther King Jr. I thought about what was he trying to do? What was he trying to focus on? How does he deconstruct? The things he was trying to do was to, was to merely, I guess, reflect the gospel narrative in Jesus as he saw fit for what he was given. Then it, it occurred to me that Brother Martin was just an ordinary brother, a sinner saved by grace, faults and all, like everybody else, who was just trying to be a witness for the risen Messiah in the way that the Spirit gave him. And that recognition, it really, really helped me. It really did. It helped me take apart and focus on what was really happening in these, these social justice efforts that I thought were separate but, separate but apart from the gospel narrative. 
it helped me to recognize that those concerns are actually central to the gospel. I think I need to say it again. It helped me to realize that those concerns were actually central to the gospel message with real-life consequences and real-life ramifications and real-life incarnational value in the flesh and blood. It made me think about how sometimes it can be easy to affirm something as nice while simultaneously deaffirming it, its importance and its centrality. I mean, I can, one can have really great noble intentions but miss the entire scope of messianic purpose. I know. I did. <laughs> Historically, you know, the, uh, there were some Christian reformers and, and even abolitionists, not all, but some, who were rightfully concerned about the evils of slavery, which is good, and wanted, to free, wanted freedom for those who were enslaved, which is very noble. But sometimes that freedom took the form of just baptizing those who were enslaved to secure for them a home in heaven while not really being so concerned about the day-to-day -day life of a slave. You know, all this, you know, toiling and rape and beating and you know, this social concerns. You're, you're going to go to heaven, so that's good. Viewing those concerns as like secular. Don't worry about that. You're baptized, you're going to go to heaven. One, again, can have the best intentions but be misguided. The challenge of disruption. It's important to recognize that to understand, at least I believe, messianic purpose is to be constantly reminded of the need to be engaged in daily, hour by hour, moment by moment, disruption again and again and again, rinse, repeat, again and again and again, rinse and repeat, even when there's great backlash. And, and to be clear, I completely understand the difficulty in learning to think and act and live in ways that have never become a part of the dominant cultural social norms and patterns. I, I understand that. What's the old, the old axiom, uh, the old thing about the, the two fish are swimming in the, in the ocean, and a big fish comes along and says, hey, how's the water? He swims along, and the two fish says, they say, hey, what's water? One can be so immersed in something so long that it can be almost impossible to, to discern or even realize. But it, it can be done, but it's difficult. It requires a commitment to constant disruption. You know, this may be truthful. Uh, you know, this is candor. I'm a man born in this time, born in this culture, with all my social locations, and it's hard for me to think of a, of a world in which my patriarchy and sexism and misogyny weren't the order of the day. <laughs> I can't imagine that. That's, that's the air I breathe. That's all I ever know. If I'm not committed to disrupting those patterns daily, then my old, my old patriarchy default will kick back in. 
because that's how I've been normalized. The same with issues of white supremacy and privilege, patterns of injustice, attitude towards poverty, homelessness, attitudes toward our brothers and sisters who are, who are trans, and that's how those things happen, because they're normalized. You know, I heard the old, the old story about King. Um, he was arrested um, after a march and a protest, and the sheriff said, hey, come here, Mr. King, what you're doing is wrong. You're rebel-rousing, you're stirring up trouble, talking about poverty, it's wrong. And King says, how much you make, Sheriff? Sheriff told him. King says, hell, you ought to be out here marching with us. <laughs> As a follower of Jesus, I am lovingly called to disruption, to disrupt those patterns, to stop and say, what's really going on, and to be mindful of them all the time. And I actually... As a follower of Jesus, as a disciple, I don't mind walking on holy eggshells all the time for your behalf. I do it for you, you do it for me. I do it for you, you do it for me. I do it for you, you do it for me. Eggshells. We can, we can handle that. I realize it's a challenge, but it's part of the abundant living that I think our brother Martin realized. Amen? Amen? I mean, personally, I'll be honest. I mean, I can't imagine a time historically when people in America, of color in America, weren't seen as a problem, or as W. Du Bois called, the Negro problem. As a black man, I can't even imagine a time when I didn't politicize a space just by showing up. Yeah. You know? I bring in race wherever I go. You know, I, I, I walk over here, it's not here until I, I walk, now it's race. Oh, here we go. I can't even think about one time when that, that wasn't the case. So let's be clear. When I or anyone else, including MLK, chooses to disrupt these systems, these systems of oppression and normalized patterns, there will be friction. These norm normative oppressive patterns and the messaging are relentless. It's like a huge tidal wave coming, you know, just coming to the shore, and you choose to disrupt it, and where they meet, that causes the, that causes the challenge, and it, they meet in places like social networks and families and churches, schools, movie sets. To daily disrupt those patterns of normalcy is not just continuing to continuing the legacy of MLK, it's too limiting. It's actually con continuing the legacy of the source. Amen. What is one to do about these severe challenges of life and deconstruction and disruption and the constant backlash? Where do we go for comfort? Where do we go for healing? Where do we go for complete acceptance and for someone who will love us just as we are? For someone to say to us, hey, you are enough. We go to the same place that Brother Martin went.
And then he said to them, Verily, verily, I say to you, I am the sheep. I am the gate for the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that you may have life. And life, what? More abundantly. The kicker for me was that life abundantly. Now, I encourage you to go home and look at the text, flesh it out, study it up. But the abundant life is a life of witness to Jesus, a life of service to those in need, a life of being poured out like wine, a life of constantly deconstructing and disrupting patterns, a life of hearing the voice of the shepherd above all the noise. This is the abundant life. And concerning MLK, yeah, there's great respect and great love, you know, challenged by that. But I challenge you to contextualize MLK's work. You know, I mean, the hero thing is great, it's fun, you know, we're gonna, you know, but be inspired by the same Jesus who inspired Brother, Brother Martin. I need to say it again. When you think about MLK tomorrow, today, television, friends, coffee, chilling, Be inspired by that same Jesus. Martin's just a man, fleshful, struggle, sinful. He's trying to serve Jesus. Let's be inspired by that. Amen. Amen.